Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Jen Archer, and I run the institutional defined contribution business at J.P. Morgan Asset Management for North America. In covering the retirement space, many of our clients are spending a lot of time thinking about the shift in consumer behavior for both themselves and their participants. Many are working from home and learning to adapt to online tools and platforms. So I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague, Shane Duffy, International Equities Portfolio Manager, and Mark Ferguson, Global Head of Research for Equities, who recently launched a white paper on the changing consumer preferences due to COVID-19. Shane has been at the firm for over 20 years, first as an analyst covering the global consumer sector, and then as a portfolio manager managing international equity strategies principally in international growth and international focus. Mark has also been at the firm for over 20 years, always in research. He was a financial analyst in Europe, Asia, and EM, and was head of emerging market research for almost 10 years, and is now the global head of research. Shane and Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get started. Mark, let's begin the conversation with you. Talk to us for a few minutes about the goal of the paper and some of the high-level themes that emerged. Great. So thank you, Jen. Good morning, everyone. Maybe if I can start just by giving some very brief background. So as many of you are hopefully aware, we have a large team of fundamental analysts in the equity business here at JP Morgan Asset Management. So if you look at emerging markets plus developed markets combined, we have 90 analysts covering around 2,500 stocks, 17 years average industry experience. And I think importantly for this purpose, we very much promote global collaboration amongst these analysts, and we have 17 global sector groups. So as the COVID crisis has hit over the last few months, I would say the team of analysts have had two main tasks. The first one is what I would call just dealing with the acute aspect of the crisis, i.e. trying to get earnings numbers up to date as quickly as possible, stress-testing balance sheets, trying to understand who's going to survive, who's not going to survive, who's going to have to raise equity, etc. So that's obviously an important part of the analyst role at a time like this. But then also, I think very important and more the subject of this call is that we've tried to get the analysts within their sector to really think about the longer term implications of COVID, i.e. what trends change, which trends don't change, etc. So that's the topic mainly for this call. And I would say if there's one overriding theme that comes out through all of this, it's really an acceleration of existing trends. So the nice quote from a historian, Yuval Noah Harari, about how pandemics press the fast forward button on history. And I think In a sense, that's what we see across a lot of the examples that we'll get to. We do see, rather than very new trends emerging, we see existing trends that are really getting accelerated by everything that's happened. Now, if you try and bucket the trends, I think you can broadly put them in three categories. There's ones related to consumer trends. There's ones related to corporate behavior or business resilience. And then there's ones related more to government society in general, in particular ESG. So we thought the best way to tackle this, given it's quite a big topic, would be to have three separate papers and three separate calls over the next few weeks going through each of these. So for this one in particular, we're going to focus on the consumer preferences side. So within that, I would highlight three main themes that we talked about in the report. The first one is around working from home. And I think we've seen sufficient evidence to be pretty convinced that at least, obviously, we will go back to the offices, but certainly the overall incidence of remote learning will certainly go up, we feel, on a more permanent basis. And it's a trend that was already in place, but certainly will be accelerated by this. 
We quoted a Gartner CFO survey in the paper to back that up. But I would say also just the corporate interactions that we have, I think, very clearly send this message as well. So, for example, even if we're talking to some of the most high-tech semiconductor companies or IT service companies with extremely large workforces globally, or even our own business, these are all examples, I think, of businesses where actually they managed to retool to be able to work and service their customers remotely more quickly and seamlessly than many people would have thought, and in many cases without any real loss in customer service. So I think clearly we will not go fully back to where we were before in that case. So that's the first overall theme, and that obviously has a lot of implications, which we can get into in more detail as we go through, but it's positive for broadband providers, positive for public cloud adoption, it's positive for potentially home improvement, residential construction over time, but then there are losers as well. Office REITs, commercial construction, business travel, business fashion, even work clothes, etc. So we do see a lot of different impacts on different industries as a result of this working from home theme. And I think Shane and I can get into that in a bit more detail as we go through. So that's the first big theme. The second big theme is what we would just call increased adoption of online alternatives. And this covers a very wide suite of industries. So the traditional e-commerce, the obvious beneficiaries like the Amazons of this world. But I think we've found also omni-channel retailers who have a good online presence have really seen a big acceleration in adoption during this period. Some more nascent areas like food delivery have really seen very large percentage rises. And then I think one of the interesting features is the data that we're seeing, the real-time data suggests that quite a degree of stickiness as economies have opened up again. We continue to see large rises in e-commerce type spending. But I think online alternatives also is a much broader. It can include streaming. It can include online learning, online healthcare, online gaming, online banking different ways of doing payments, et cetera. So I think, again, it's a broad theme which covers a great deal of industries and a great deal of potential investment opportunities. And Shane will get into that again in a much more detail. So that's the second big theme, increased adoption of online alternatives. The third one that we mentioned is also potentially has big implications. I'd say it's one we probably have slightly less conviction about how it will play out, but that's just around risk aversion and higher savings rates. So, again, we can come back and talk about that one in more detail. There are other themes as well that we can come back to, but those are the three that we thought were particularly worth highlighting. So I will stop there and maybe Shane can get into some of more detail around examples to illustrate these themes. That's incredibly helpful. And I think the first thing that you mentioned around working from home, that's obviously going to have a large impact on many of these aspects of our daily life, from things like shopping and vacation to, as you mentioned, business, attire and business travel and everyday commuting. Shane, could you maybe spend a few minutes on the impact, particularly on the energy and transportation sectors? Yeah, sure. I think Mark set things up very well there. I think the key issue, really, when we think about energy in the first instance is the impact of working from home. If we look at the U.S. energy picture, the breakdown of demand for oil by sort of end uses, then around a third of the demand for oil in the U.S. relates to commuting, and around a fifth relates to shopping. So, Already, around half of energy demand is related to activities which are going to be quite seriously impacted, certainly in the short term and possibly longer term, by the trend towards working from home. So reduced levels of activity really are a challenge for the energy and oil demand picture. But of course, in this sector, you've got to deal with some really unpredictable supply side issues. And the timing of the Saudi-Russia debacle back in March couldn't, couldn't have been worse. And we've seen a potential supply surge in oil release into the market at a time when demand is under pressure. Consequently, energy prices have come under 
quite a lot of near-term pressure. There is obviously not lots of self-correcting mechanisms within the energy market. Supply will be shut in and constrained to try to sort of normalise the price a bit. But it does mean that our longer-term view on energy prices is lower than it would have been pre-COVID. And I think some of these trends are just bringing forward longer-term demand destruction for energy and EV adoption could well accelerate here as people do start to think about and travel again, they might want sort of cleaner options. Government policy, I think, particularly in Europe, is going to seek to accelerate green initiatives and the adoption of renewable energy sources. But to some extent, I think the impacts on the energy sector here are very long term. And it's just a reminder, really, of the unpredictability of the sector and the difficult economics for the industry. So we've seen the major oil companies slashing capex, but also slashing dividends, so lower return to shareholders. And also just today, we saw some fairly big write-downs on BP and Shell's asset bases as well, reflecting the impaired values of some of these projects and investments that have been made historically. So a pretty tough impact in an already difficult sector, I would say, for energy. On transport, it's a little bit more nuanced. You know, when we think about travel as an industry and transportation, it has been you know, on the travel side, a growth industry in recent years, traffic growing at a multiple of GDP. So There have been attractions here for investors to try and invest around the travel and transportation theme. And in previous crises, we've seen travel rebound actually pretty quickly post-recessions. Normally, it takes around two years to get back to pre-crisis levels of demand. And leisure in particular is the quickest to respond. But I think there's reasons to be a little bit more cautious here. You know, I think even as economies open up, we're seeing some hesitance from consumers around travel. We're obviously seeing a shift in business trends. You know, we can do more via telephone and via Zoom and other services like that. So maybe the demand for business travel starts to come under some medium-term pressure as well, and we don't see that initial snapback. But as we look at it, we feel that the hotel industry is probably in a better position than the airline industry right now. I think it's easier for the hotel industry to observe social distancing and manage some of those challenges. We also expect local demand to recover more quickly than sort of international travel and that will help the hotel industry over the air travel industry. And, of course, airlines really struggle with low load factors. So if you can't fill airplanes, the economics suddenly look pretty bad. So we would remain pretty cautious on the airline industry, which obviously has some structural challenges around overcapacity anyway. And it also makes us think about the knock-on effects for the civil aerospace sector, where, into that earlier comment, because air traffic has been a growth industry, there's also been potentially quite a bit of growth in the civil aerospace sector and demand for new planes support the outlook for businesses like Boeing and Airbus. But clearly, if airlines are under financial pressure, that potentially puts new plane orders under pressure and, and some negative consequences for those businesses. So that's one area where I'd say we, we were historically more optimistic on the medium to long-term growth outlook. We'd probably be a little bit more cautious now in the wake of COVID and some of these effects starting to linger around. Thanks. If we move on to the second trend, the acceleration of online alternatives, Shane, what were some of the trends that you saw before COVID-19, and do you see those changing as you look towards the future? Yeah, I mean, online alternatives is a very broad label and covers a lot of industries. And the facts are that while some parts of the online space have done very well on the back of the COVID pandemic and seen real acceleration in trends, that's not true universally. I'd say that the three areas where we've been most enthusiastic have been retail, food delivery and entertainment. And each of those three areas have seen a positive acceleration in trends around the COVID pandemic. So if you take retail, for example, 
Amazon reported very strong numbers in Q2, beating expectations. We've seen some of the e-commerce businesses operating in single verticals like clothing retail in Europe perform very well as well. So as consumers have stayed at home, it's obviously been much easier to order your goods to be delivered straight to the home. And this has really brought forward, we think, e-commerce penetration quite dramatically. So when we look at the US, for example, e-commerce penetration jumped by around six to eight percentage points in April and May alone. So we think the US is probably on track for e-commerce sales to be around 30% of retail sales by 2024. That's about three years ahead of where we might have expected the US to hit prior to this pandemic. So to Mark's earlier point, we're seeing these trends accelerate, but we're also seeing real stickiness around these behaviors. This isn't just a sort of flash in the pan where we think consumers are going to go back to traditional retail models as soon as some freedom of movement comes back to reality. I think this is going to really cement some of these trends and structurally move economies like the US, but even more established online economies like the UK or Korea, higher up the adoption and penetration curve. Food delivery, likewise, I mentioned, many of the companies in that space have seen a real acceleration in order volumes on the back of this. And again, the interesting thing there, we think, is that many of these customers, you know, the business model relies on a customer acquisition cost and then the lifetime value of the customer. But many customers come to these platforms almost voluntarily in this process. They haven't sort of been expensively acquired with lots of sort of incentives and promotions. So the economics of getting these customers in right now is actually tremendously positive as well. And so we expect that to really come through in the results these companies are reporting. Finally, on entertainment, you know, the streaming area that Mark mentioned has been really positive, really strong. We've seen record subscriber additions for Netflix in Q2. We've seen strong acceleration in businesses like Spotify. So, you know, it really is starting to accelerate some of these trends, which were strongly in place already, but just moving them onto a stronger footing and further up the adoption curve. As I mentioned, it's not universal. There are some online platforms which are struggling and seeing trends interrupted through this process. If you think about the ride-sharing space, Uber, for example, ride bookings were down 80% in April, down 70% in May. And even in markets where we've seen a return to more normal levels of activity, ride-sharing, ride-hailing apps are seeing activity only really back to around 80% of pre-COVID levels. So, again, it goes back to that point. There is hesitance from consumers and caution as they emerge from this. So, some of these areas which have been seeing strong growth might be waiting a little bit longer to get back onto that growth trajectory. Okay, thanks. One of the interesting things that I've seen over the past few months is as we look at U.S. household savings rates, right, they have increased significantly to 13% in March and then 33% in April. Mark, what does this tell you all about consumer behavior going forward? Do we think that there will be a permanent shift in the savings rate? Yes, that's a difficult question. So in the white paper, we showed the longer-term chart of that going back to 1980, and we shaded the areas where there were recessions in the past. And I think in general, I would say you pretty much always see a temporary increase in savings during recessions, i.e. you see some risk aversion going up, at least on a temporary basis. However, if you see the ones in the comparatively mild recessions, for example, in the early 90s and early 2000s, they didn't actually break the structural trend of the time of reduced overall savings. However, the global financial crisis did, which was obviously in a sense a deeper recession for many people, a much bigger upheaval. And by that point, and was coming from a point where savings rates have got to an extremely low base. So we can see that post that, we have seen it move up from around 2% to around 8%. This is all in the US. Um, and then obviously, for specific reasons, we've seen the spike over the last 
couple of months. So in a sense, I think it's an area we have a bit of conviction in terms of calling what happens in the secular level. I mean, we're seeing a deeper version than normal of the short-term spike. My personal view is that due to the depth of this recession, similar to 2008, probably the secular trend of increased savings, I think that's more likely than not to have a more secular nature to it this time around, which will obviously, if true, would have a lot of implications for various parts of consumer industries, including our own industry as well. But as I said at the outset, that's one that we thought was worth flagging, but I wouldn't say it's one that we feel, you know, we have very high conviction that we know the right answer in terms of what happens next. Okay, great. So with that, I want to ask you both one more question. Of all the trends we've discussed, there could be a pretty significant impact on long-term investment implications. Keeping that in mind, we have folks ranging from public pensions to corporations, endowment and foundations, healthcare companies, and consulting partners on the line today. What are some of the investment implications that they should be aware of? Maybe I'll start and Shane can continue on that. I mean, I think in a sense, my answer will sound rather self-serving, but I think in a sense, the crisis does highlight the importance of fundamental research, because I think there's a lot of micro-level complexity to what's going on. So there are these big secular trends, some of which we're pretty confident in, some of which we're less sure about. At the same time, there is a lot of market dislocation, as we've seen in the last several months. There's a lot of near-term stress, a lot of earnings pressure varying a lot from industry to industry and from geography to geography. So in a sense, it's very hard to generalize. I think about, you know, you should buy the winners necessarily because in some cases it's very heavily priced in or you should buy growth stocks or value stocks, et cetera. So I think in a sense, the answer is very micro. And I think so really having that individual understanding of all the different companies in all the different sectors and geographies, I do think is very important for navigating a time. So from a research perspective, the way we try to think about it, we ask our analysts to think, first of all, around corporate quality, if you like, and have a kind of a structured process for thinking about that. And this obviously ties in a lot to these secular themes, who are the winners and losers. But then within that, we also have an emphasis on a common valuation process, which assumes a relatively long time horizon, five years. But nevertheless, it gives the opportunity for us to understand in which cases the winners are a bit overhyped, in which cases the relative losers. You know, A good example we've been talking about a lot recently is European banks, which I think nobody would put in the structural winners category. But we do think they're a lot more resilient than they were in previous crises. And we do think the valuations are very cheap. So as I say, the general approach, I think, to investing, it has to be very micro. It has to combine assessments of corporate quality with a fairly disciplined valuation framework. So that would be my answer on the research side, but I'm sure Shane would probably want to add some comments on the PM front. Thanks, Mark. I think you're absolutely right. I think it does remind you when you go through one of these crises, just the importance of corporate quality, you know, the profitability of the franchise, the market position a company occupies, the intelligence of the management team, the resilience of the business. And so having a framework around that and being able to sort of hold your nerve and keep faith in the best quality businesses through what is a generally a tough time for everyone, I think is critical. In each and every crisis that I've invested through, we've seen the good companies get even better on the way out. So whilst the temptation can be to sort of try and be cute and tactically exploit the recovery in stocks that are more leveraged to that and to normalization, I think in reality, the best long-term approach is to stay with the structural winners and the most structurally advantaged, well-managed, profitable companies you can find. And that's certainly what the research process here gives us. You know, thinking more big picture and from an asset allocator's point of view, I guess the big question is around 
the health of sovereign balance sheets at the end of all this. You know, we've got used to massive amounts of monetary intervention, but we haven't yet seen that combined with huge amounts of fiscal stimulus. So we're about to see what that does. The big debate, I suppose, is, is around what that does, you know, medium to longer term to inflation, bond yields and market leadership. And that's sort of often beyond the remit of an equity portfolio manager. But I would say that our fundamental belief goes back to that idea that the best companies will prosper whatever the environment. You know, if we see some short term uptick in inflation on the back of fiscal stimulus and so on, so be it that might short term give a bit of a boost to some of those more inflation sensitive sectors. But you know, if that's a long term boost to overall economic growth and demand, then most companies will benefit and strongly positioned companies will benefit disproportionately over a longer investment horizon. So we do engage on some of these issues and worry about the implications of changes in government policy. But from a micro perspective, it all comes back to exactly what Mark is saying, identify that the best positioned companies invest around them for the long term. Thanks so much. Mark and Shane, thank you so much for your insight. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution. This communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP, Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash 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 global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador.
in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APOC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia. To wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.